Part 3. Sent from Heaven Syracuse, New York, 1849 Garrett Smith is standing pensively outside of his home on his beautiful New York estate. He's a 52-year-old man. His hair's been falling out. He's developed a bit of a gut, and he's grown a small patch of beard under his jawline to cover up his double chin. And he's staring at America's first ever temperance hotel. Smith had built this hotel just a few years earlier as a sober living community for anyone who was trying to break their addiction to alcohol. He offered this hotel free of charge. Smith detested alcohol. He saw the terrible effects it was having on poor households and families throughout New York and the rest of the United States, and he wanted to help. That's the thing about Garrett Smith, is he always wanted to help. And he was insanely wealthy. He knew that he was blessed with his wealth, and he spends vast amounts of his fortune trying to improve the lives of those less fortunate than him. But in 1849, Smith is looking at that sober living facility, and and Smith was probably thinking, I should probably just burn it down. Because in two years, nobody had taken him up on, on his offer for free rehab. And now that's the other thing about Garrett Smith. Pretty much every attempt at philanthropy ends in failure. It never really hurt him financially, but his reputation and his ego would always take a big hit. And in the previous year, he, Michael Bloomberg, he ran for president as the Liberty Party's nominee. He spent tons of his own money on a national campaign. He didn't even get a tenth of a percent of the vote in 1848. But his platform was way ahead of its time. Uh, He ran on the emancipation of slaves, uh, also universal suffrage, regardless of gender or race. And of course, he also wanted to ban the sale of alcohol in the United States. So maybe Garrett Smith was just too far ahead of his time. Maybe it was his nervous disposition and his tendency to have frequent panic attacks. Or maybe it was his strange neckbeard. But no matter how much money Garrett Smith threw at his problems, he just couldn't get his ideas off the ground. So in 1849, not only is Smith disappointed with his temperance hotel, but he has a much bigger problem north in the Adirondack Mountains. Three years earlier, New York State passed this law where black men essentially could no longer vote unless they owned a certain amount of land or they owned property worth more than $2,000. So this is one of those old-timey voter suppression laws where they don't even attempt to hide the racism. But Garrett Smith wouldn't stand for this. What he does is he buys 120 to 200,000 acres of land in North Elba. This is in the middle of the Adirondack Mountain Range in northern New York. Uh, He splits up the land into 40-acre plots, and he hands out that land free of charge to more than 3,000 black men and their families. He granted them the right to vote by giving them this land. This new homestead community would become known as Timbuktu. Yeah, which is a little weird, but it's an extremely charitable gesture on Garrett Smith's part, of course. 
but it's also a classic example of a rich person trying to solve a poor person's problems. These thousands of people will leave their homes and their jobs in cities like Syracuse and New York City and go into the cold, barren wilderness of the Adirondacks where they were expected to clear the forest, build a home, and till the land for farming. These people were former waiters, bussers, store clerks. They were not pioneers. So needless to say, three years later, the community was on the verge of collapse. Most of the people had already left, and the ones who remained were living in makeshift shacks, unable to grow enough food for the coming winter. Timbuktu was about to become Garrett Smith's most humiliating philanthropic blunder yet. But then, out of the blue, Garrett Smith is visited by a prominent New England merchant and outspoken abolitionist named John Brown. The two of them hit it off immediately. As they spoke over dinner, they realized they had so much in common. Both were intensely religious, sober, and believed abolition was the most pressing issue facing the country. But Brown didn't seem to have much interest in discussing his wool business in New England. He kept changing the subject to Smith's experiment in the Adirondacks, and Smith was embarrassed to say that it was not going well at all. He didn't know what to do for those poor folks living in the cold woods up in the northern hills. And then John Brown says this, You know, I am something of a pioneer myself. I grew up among the woods and wild Indians of Ohio, and am used to the climate and the way of life that your colony finds so trying. I will take one of your farms myself, clear it up and plant it, and show my colored neighbors how such work should be done. I will give them work as I have occasion, look after them in all needful ways, and be a kind of father to them. It's as if Brown was sent from heaven above to Syracuse, New York, to save those poor people in North Elba and solve Garrett Smith's biggest problem. So John Brown is given a free farm, and Garrett Smith is the one who says thank you. And Brown will move his family from Springfield, Massachusetts to North Elba and quickly discovers that the soil there is actually no good for growing crops like corn or wheat. However, the grassy, hilly terrain made it ideal for cattle ranching. So Brown and his sons will drive a small herd of Devon cattle from Connecticut to North Elba, and they will work on building a new life in New York. Garrett Smith was impressed by Brown. How virtuous is this man to leave behind his New England wool business and live a hard pioneer's life in the hidden, isolated Adirondacks? I believe this time in North Elba might have been the happiest time in John Brown's life. From the timber of the forest, Brown can finally build a home that suits his massive family. He lives up to his promise to help his neighbors providing employment, but also education on how to survive in the rough Adirondack wilderness. But most importantly, Brown's home in North Elba was only about a day's walk from the U.S.-Canada border, which means for dozens of men and women taking the Underground Railroad north to Canada, the last night they ever spent in the United States was in John Brown's home. Maybe if things went 
a bit differently. I think John Brown would have been happy to live out the rest of his days in those far-off hills. While little remains of this small ranching community of old Timbuktu, it is the final resting place where John Brown's body lies moldering there in his grave. Part 4. The Beginning of the End On September 18, 1850, a new Fugitive Slave Bill became law. It was a revision of the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, which granted a slave owner the right to seek out his own human property across state lines at his own expense. Now, this new bill put the responsibility on the federal government to enforce fugitive slave laws in northern free states. This bill was a massive compromise, mostly to prevent southern states from seceding. And this was a huge win for the slave-owning South. The new Fugitive Slave Act significantly increased the value of human property because now federal marshals were given a new responsibility to apprehend any black man or woman on suspicion of being a fugitive slave. Also, local municipalities in the North were required to assist those marshals. It gave slave owners the right to sue the U.S. government for the estimated value of unrecovered slave property. And any officer who refused to comply with the new law would be fined $1,000. Now, I'm sure those Southern senators were really proud of themselves. Most of them were slave owners themselves, and their shiny new piece of legislation immediately increased the value of their own estate. Because by 1850, slave property was the single most valuable asset for the majority of large plantation owners. But the Fugitive Slave Act was also the beginning of the end of the Southern Plantation Empire. By 1850, the vast majority of Northern whites were still pretty racist. They may have thought slavery was distasteful, but they still felt a sense of racial superiority. It was the same in Europe. Slavery is not the behavior of an enlightened, civilized nation such as ours. They tell you, wearing fine cotton overcoats, smoking tobacco out of their pipes, and stirring cane sugar into their tea. It was easy to disdain slavery while woefully consuming the cheap products that slavery produced. And it was the same in the North. So in cities like Boston and New York, before 1850, one didn't really even bat an eye when families were being torn apart, black businesses were being ransacked and destroyed, and free black men and women were being kidnapped off the streets by private slave catchers. But this new fugitive slave bill meant that southern state laws would be enforced in the north. You see, it was people in the north who viewed the Fugitive Slave Act as a gross violation of state sovereignty and states' rights. Every time a black man or woman was apprehended in a free state by federal marshals, the South, this victim of Northern aggression, was flexing its power over the U.S. federal government. So now in 1850, your average racist Joe in the North is starting to realize that their taxes were being spent on the reclamation of Southern human property. The pro-slavery majority in the Senate only represented a fraction of the U.S. population. Their republic was being manipulated to benefit a few wealthy southern plantation owners. And over the course of the coming decade, this animosity in the North is going to grow 
and we know where this animosity ends. But the Fugitive Slave Act also brought the idea of abolition from the fringes to the mainstream. Some abolitionists lost their faith in the government and adopted a more violent and militant stance. The North was starting to fight back. And now John Brown sees his opportunity. So instead of finally settling down and enjoying his new pioneer life in the New York mountains, the Fugitive Slave Act is going to mobilize John Brown. He will spend the next few years traveling throughout Ohio, New York, Massachusetts, training and arming groups of black men. John Brown called these men the Knights of the Gileadites. Here's an excerpt from the manifesto of the Springfield branch of the Knights, written by Brown and signed by at least 44 young men. Should one of your number be arrested, you must collect together as quickly as possible so as to outnumber your adversaries who are taking an active part against you. Let no able-bodied man appear on the ground unequipped or with his weapons exposed to view. After effecting a rescue, if you are assailed, go into the house of your most prominent and influential white friends with your wives. Stand by one another and by your friends while a drop of blood remains, and be hanged if you must, but tell no tales out of school. Make no confession. The Fugitive Slave Act was not the last piece of pro-slavery legislation to be passed. And every time a new law is passed for the South, northern cities will slip further into anarchy and violence. And by 1854, Boston, Massachusetts had become the center for protest against these pro-slavery laws. And by 1854, Boston was a powder keg that was about to explode. Part 5. The Arrest of Anthony Burns It's Wednesday evening, May 24th, 1854, Boston, Massachusetts. Anthony Burns is a young man of about 20 years old. He stands at 6 feet tall. He's muscular, charming, and devilishly handsome. He's a store clerk at a small shop on Court Street in the center of town and he is enjoying his newfound independence. As just a few months earlier, Anthony Burns escaped Colonel Charles Suttle's Alexandria plantation and smuggled his way north to freedom. By the end of March, Burns had arrived in Boston. Life for former slaves was never easy, especially in these crowded, industrializing cities. Burns' former home in Antebellum South was stuck in the 17th century. These sprawling plantations dotted with dusty little towns. And meanwhile, northern cities like Boston were booming towards the 20th century on a steam-powered engine. The sheer culture shock alone would be hard for anyone to handle, but Burns seemed to thrive here in the smoke and noise. Burns was ambitious and extremely intelligent. At a young age, Burns had taught himself how to read and write, and he began preaching the gospel to his community of slaves, 
which was illegal in Virginia. By the time he was 17 years old, this outlaw preacher convinced his owner, Charles Suttle, to rent him out to work on the docks in Richmond, and this is where he saved enough money for his eventual escape. And Anthony Burns had two distinct scars. One on his hand, which probably came from an accident from his labor, but then one across his left cheek, a clear sign of punishment for insubordination. On this day, on May 24th, 1854, Burns was walking down Court Street after finishing his work at the shop. On that day, there was quite a commotion. He could overhear conversations about some new slave legislation concerning a far-off territory called Kansas. The whole city was up in arms about it. There was this clear tension in the air, like at any moment the city could just snap and start to riot. And then Byrne turns the corner on Brittle Street where his house was, and he sees a group of four white men. They seem to be waiting there for him. Burns casually turns around, and then three more men come around the corner. So Burns is surrounded, and the rest of the street is deserted. One of these men approaches Burns. Even though the man wasn't in uniform, he pulls out a pair of handcuffs, and he says, Young man, we're placing you under arrest for breaking and entering a nearby shop. If you submit quietly and be examined for a half hour, there will be no difficulty. Burns feels this huge sense of relief. It wasn't uncommon for the police to just arrest every black man in an area where there was a crime committed. If he just stayed quiet and honest, he would get to go home that night. But once at the courthouse, Burns was led to a small room, and when the door was opened, what he found was his former master, Charles Suttle. Burns then lowers his head and begins to sob. Anthony, says Suttle, have I not been a generous and merciful master to you all those years? Paralyzed by fear, all Burns can say is, Yes. Yes, sir. Suttle smiles at the marshal who had brought in Burns. According to Suttle, that was the only evidence that he needed to bring Anthony Burns home that next day. Anthony Burns spends that night in a jail cell. The next morning at 9 a.m., the marshal presents Burns to a judge, his hands and feet bound by chains. Suttle's lawyers... Seth Thomas and Edward Parker enter the courtroom. But then behind them, three more gentlemen hurriedly enter. They introduce themselves to Burns as Richard Dana, Charles Ellis, and the Robert Morris. These three prominent Boston attorneys had caught wind of Burns's arrest and had rushed to the courthouse to volunteer to be his counsel during the arraignment. Thomas and Parker looked visibly annoyed. Nonetheless, Parker pulls out a piece of paper and reads the following to the judge. In the name of the President of the United States of America, you are hereby commanded forthwith to apprehend Anthony Burns, a Negro man alleged now to be in your district, charged with being a fugitive from labor and with having escaped from service in the state of Virginia. If he may be found in your precinct and have him forthwith before me, Edward G. Loring, 
one of the commissioners of the Circuit Court of the United States for the said district, then and there to answer to the complaint of Charles F. Suttle of Alexandria in the said state of Virginia, merchant alleging under oath that the said Anthony Burns on the 24th day of March last did and for a long time prior thereto had owed service and labor to him the said subtle in the state of Virginia, and that while held to service there by said subtle, the said Burns escaped from the said state of Virginia into the said state of Massachusetts, and that said Burns still owes service and labor to said subtle in the said state of Virginia, and praying that said Burns may be restored to him said subtle in said state of Virginia, and that such further proceedings may then and there be had in the premises, and are by law in such cases provided, hereof fail not, and make due return of this writ with your doings thereon be before me. Burns was obviously quite confused by the whole situation, but luckily Richard Dana pipes in and pleads with the judge to give an extension on the trial so that Burns would have an opportunity to build a stronger defense for himself. Right, after back and forth between the sets of counsels, uh, the judge finally agreed that Burns would be given an extra three days and the trial of Anthony Burns was to be held on Saturday morning, May 27th, 1854. Thomas and Parker storm out of the room. They are very upset, and for good reason. They knew they needed to get Anthony Burns out of the city as quickly as possible, because in Boston, word travels fast and stories of yet another young man kidnapped off the streets by federal marshals would not only lead to riots in the city, but an all-out rebellion. Well, that's episode two of my second ever podcast. Uh, hope you're enjoying so far, those of you listening out there. Uh, it's a learning process, but... Uh, perhaps now you're wondering, where on earth is John Brown? All right, well, that's why you have to tune in for our next episode. All right, I'll let you know what he's doing. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about him. Otherwise, uh, the stories uh, uh, from today's podcast came directly from, uh, once again, The Life and Letters by John. The Life and Letters of John Brown by Franklin Benjamin Sandburn. And William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper called The Liberator. Uh, all of the uh, uh, parts of The Liberator are actually available for free online uh, through their website. They have every single issue. Right? So once again, you type in the date. Uh, the keyword search isn't as helpful there, but still, uh, uh, it's one of the most amazing things to get to read. Uh, uh, the front lines of abolition uh, these uh, newspapers at the time. So highly recommend it if you're looking for some extra reading, uh, some extra history nuggets, uh, that's there for you online. I'll see you next time. <laughs>